Tarly, when I was a lad half your age, my lady mother told me that if I stood about with my mouth open, a weasel was like to mistake it for his lair and run down my throat. If you have something to say, say it. Otherwise, beware of weasels. Hello, and welcome to 2C1C, a Game of Thrones living card game podcast founded in 2010 by myself, Will Lentz, Greg Atkinson, and Brad Zeiler. These days, my co-hosts may differ, but we're generally pulling from at least some familiar core voices. Many thanks go out to Fantasy Flight Games' George R. Martin, Card Game DB, and Josh Woodward for the CC licensed music you're hearing now. This is Season 5. Alright guys, this episode is actually going to be a little bit different. We're going to jump in with some guest hosts for a little uh, bit of a special topic we had going on here in a moment. Uh, we don't have a regular intro, but I wanted to go ahead and welcome you guys to Two Champs and Chump episode uh, 208. Of course, I'm Will, generally known as Kenan. Uh, we're going to have some good stuff coming up here this episode, but I also wanted to give everyone the heads up. Uh, that they should be on the lookout for some changes coming with the show. Uh, with the 2.0 relaunch uh, fast upon us here very soon, um, we have been working on some new things for the show, uh, some different uh, features, some, some community projects that we think will be good, um, just a variety of things. You will probably hear more about it uh, very soon. I think I'm close to uh, getting most of it wrapped up, uh, probably, say, 75% done at the moment. Astute uh, fans of the show may have already seen bits and pieces and, and hints here and there. Uh, so be on the lookout, guys, for future developments. As well, for future developments, I want to go ahead and pre-prop uh, the Kingslayer uh, Top X Elimination event at Game of Thrones. No, it is not a uh, an official Gen Con event for Game of Thrones, but we are following up with the actual Kingslayer event that FFG is running, uh, which will be entirely Swiss. Uh, so some of us here in the community are banding together to uh, get things organized to host an actual uh, top elimination uh, so that we can play things out to determine a true and final winner the way FFG normally would. So um, props to uh, Chris, Dennis, and Aaron for helping out with, with that particular project. Uh, we will let you know more as we go, but we've got some plans in the works. So if you're listening and you're going to be there competing, hang around uh, so we can keep things rolling from there. And last... But not least, I, unfortunately, by myself, have a little bit of news to drop on you guys. Now, I know the House Baratheon spoiler article dropped this week, and I'm as shocked as anyone else to see that they are the Neil faction this time around. 
My beloved Lannisters have lost it. I think we already knew that from the Lannister preview article. Uh, but it's interesting to see where it went now. And as I saw someone point out uh, the other day, it seems interesting that FFG seems to always put the kneeling or exhaustion into the yellow factions in their games. Both Game of Thrones 1st and 2nd edition and Tau in uh, Conquest. Uh, okay, so it doesn't hold up so much in, say, Call of Cthulhu. But it's still interesting, nonetheless. We've seen some interesting cards. I won't sit down and go through all of them, uh, but I think Baratheon is going to be a force to be reckoned with uh, in second edition. And so I'm going to have a very, very hard time deciding which one to play. We'll probably hit on it in a little more depth when I have some co-hosts available with me. Uh, But the special guests this week threw our timing off a little bit. Now, what I do have is a preview card for Baratheon. Our exclusive preview card is an attachment. It's a two-cost, unique attachment. It's Lightbringer. has the R'hllor and Weapon traits. Attaches to a Baratheon character only. If attached character is Stannis Baratheon, he gains Renown. And as a reaction, after attached character gains one or more power, stand it when it wants per phase. So I think that is actually pretty sweet. It's interesting that it harkens back, I think, to first edition uh, Baratheon by giving the character kind of a pseudo form of Vigilant, um, which is pretty sweet, I think. Uh, this, this may be a reasonable option for some power rush. And the fact that attachments return to your hand in second edition means that this can keep coming back. Now, the catch is, of course, you're going to need Stannis alive or someone else that already has Renown to begin with for it to go on. Um, but that seems like it could be pretty useful. Extra use out of these large, beefy, uh, you know, six, seven cost characters is going to be key, I think. And with Stannis' ability, as we saw in the preview article, to keep all the two characters on, on each side of the board from standing, um, this Lightbringer is going to give you even more of an edge uh, when you have that ability active, and you're able to stand uh, a couple characters and then also keep standing, hopefully, Stannis with Lightbringer uh, to make sure that you have the character edge above and beyond going forward. So there's the spoiler, guys. We'll have that image up for you probably tomorrow after you listen. Without further ado, our symposium. Welcome, listeners, to kind of uh, the meat of the episode this week. Uh, We've got a special treat for you guys, several guests. I want to throw some props out early here to Aaron for brainstorming this little symposium and simultaneously slop that bastard for bailing and not actually participating in it once he brainstormed it. No doubt. There you go. So we've, we've got some guests in with us. We want to do uh, kind of a little Q&A um, type thing here with some of the more renowned uh, deck builders and players in the game these days. Uh, get a little feel for where they have been in, and are currently at in first edition and uh, where we're headed into second. So uh, I'll tell you what, let's, let's 
hit up a little bit of an introduction uh, for everybody. I'm sure most listeners are probably familiar with some of you guys by now, uh, but I'm imagining we're getting a little bit of an influx of new folks uh, as the summer goes on. So let, let's roll through here. Um, I'm actually probably going to, to start with Greg, you know, since uh, his, I don't know, first name comes first in the alphabet? I don't know. It's as good a starting point as any. How about the fact that he's supposed to be one of these champs on your show? <laughs> supposed to be. Founding member of the podcast. There you go. Hey, uh, lately I have been on over 50% for probably the last two months. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. been really consistent. He's stepping it up. I appreciate that. Yeah, trying to get back in the game, getting the swing of things, been playing and talking the game. And, I mean, not as much as our other two uh, symposium guests here, but um, definitely a long history of playing the game going back to 2003. So Yeah, well, speaking of, why don't you round that out a little bit more, your name, kind of where you're uh – where you play out of your meta, so to speak, and uh, kind of how long you have been with the game. Uh, well, picked up the game in 2003. Uh, been, I live here in southwest Missouri, so been playing with uh, the group in this area. Um, have been fortunate enough to win two Joust World Championships and also have been at two other final tables and lost. Um, uh, that's Pretty good run. Kind of about it. Uh, won a few regional trophies, but only about a quarter of what each of the other uh, symposium guests have won. But uh, have just been playing this game for quite a few years. Sweet. Oh, yeah. I guess I should say my full name, Greg Atkinson, also known as Dobbler and the creator of My Agenda. My Agenda. And... Flea Bottom. <laughs> Even Greg's trying to forget Flea Bottom. <laughs> no, I Flea Bottom is awesome. Way more decks than my agenda. Okay, well, continuing the semi-alphabetical order, I'm used to doing it the way a computer would these days. So I guess that sends us to John Bruno, since each comes before that in mind. Howdy, y'all. Um, first, I'll throw one thing in for Greg. His agenda should be referred to as Knights of Hollow Hill or K-O-T-H-H. Never the two 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 crap. We hate that thing. Am I right, Greg? Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Just my just refer to it as my agenda. Even if you're even if you're the one speaking. So fair enough. Um, all right. So I've been playing the game ever since it first came out back in the fall of twenty two thousand two. Um, I was I played in the very first world championship that they ever had. They had almost hundred players in that first one, and it's pretty cool to see how many people were are still around from even that top eight. Like, Nate actually made the top eight. He lost in the finals to Casey. Nice. I was in the top eight. Um, Zoomane was in the top eight. And that's for the top eight. And, you know, we've all had lots of success and lots of ways of the game. But I lost to Casey in the first round of the top eight. But anyway, I won in um, 2005 and uh, made the final table in 2007 and lost that. And then I won again in 2012. Um when they changed and gave like everyone a chance to make a card. So in 2009, but anyway, um, so I've been playing the game for a long time, other than three years that I took away from the, took a break away from the game for like being in a coma, almost dying and then trying to recover my life. But other than that, everything's okay. I, yeah, played, uh, so I know. I know. Well, 
The truth is, is that in 2008, I went to Chicago and I lost the game to Will in the in Dallas, and I think it's the <laughs> only game I've ever lost to Will. Yeah. And I'm like, True. I'm like, damn, if I can't beat Will, I'm no, I have no right playing this game anymore. So I took three years <laughs> off to recover. That's legit. Though That's I don't think right. you're really like painting the full picture for everybody. You lost before making any challenges. That's right? true. That is true. I was I was so out of it. I just like blinked and like Tywin just ran over me, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, it was pretty pretty ugly. Now, like I said, if, if Will's gonna win a game, I'm out of here. But <laughs> now I do feel like I've kind of made up for it since I came back against Will. But you know that's at Worlds. But you know and. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but anyway. Uh, regional last year. Yeah, the regional last year. I don't know. I lose track of all those things. I forget You've about all those things. so many times. Yeah, you know. It's the anomalies that you remember. But anyway, um, yeah, and I've got, I don't know, like 20, 20 plus, 21 regional wins over the years. So it's been a lot of fun to to have some success, like, before I went away and, and then also after I come back because I was worried about having any kind of success after being back for being gone for three years and rediscovered a carpool. But anyway, I'm glad I'm back. It's a fun game to play, obviously, as all of us know. And I'm going to miss 1.0 a lot when it leaves. But um, the reason to come back and everyone should know playing this game, obviously, is our great community. So that's why I still play, because I love the community as much as the game. So that's me. You're right there. You are. Oh, you wait. Are. i got to tell you my cards. Like, uh, yeah, yep. I don't know. Two first cards, note, right? The first snow of winter is the one I the plot I made in 2005. And just a real quick thing, the only reason I came up with it at the time was because it was in a meta where there was no, Valor was not in the meta, and Threat from the North was not in the meta. They were both, you know, original CCG cards, but they had rotated out of the meta. So we needed, I thought at the time, something for weenies. So that's why I designed that card. And then 2012, I designed Mad King Aries because... um I told Zyler I'd never win again, and that would be the card I made if I ever did. But And I had to think, what other card can I be tortured on? I'm like, yeah, Mad King Aries, that's the card. There you go. So, anyway, that's me. Brilliant. All right, that sends us to uh, Naj, who I think I will probably continue to, to term that way to save on confusion for the audio listeners. Sure. Um, I don't have as prestigious a track record as the two world champions here. I got three national uh, wins, but no world wins. Uh, so I do get a card design for one of those because of the overall at Gen Con. Uh, but definitely not two card designs like the other uh, the other people on the cast. Uh, like Bruno, I have around 21 um, regional wins. And I've been only playing about since about 2011. And the reason I got into this game, uh, like Bruno was mentioning, was the great community. I remember the first year I ever played in a competitive event. It was Gen Con. It was 2011. And I played against this great guy in the top 16. He kept apologizing for pummeling me to death. And I really appreciated that, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was my first introduction to Thrones, and it was a good one. Well, I'm glad to know I wasn't a total ass because I've been referred to as that a few times. So, right here too. Me too. <laughs> if you guys would just ass. stop beating people. Yeah, I will. I want to say one more thing too. Just while we're sitting here bragging and everything, Greg and I talked about this the other day. Greg, what was the uh, the number we came up with for the final table at, at, at Worlds? Well, John and I 
um, despite having made it to the final table multiple times, have actually never played at the final table. So there are just as many final tables at Gen Con that have included one that have included me or John than there are tables that have not included me or John. That's awesome. There have been 12, there have been 12 world championships slash joust championships because I still consider that the world championship. There have been 12, 12 of those. Don't, don't, don't take away my melee wins. Okay. Um, <laughs> there have been twelve of those, and Greg and I, Greg or I, have been at the final table of seven of those twelve. That's kind of cool. That is pretty very good cool. representation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway. my my hope is, um, you know, just just for all the fun giggles and silliness, is that finally this year, two thousand and fifteen, John and I can meet in the final game. But uh considering I'm I might be a little past my prime, I think there's a better chance of him making it than me. So uh I'm turning fifty in two weeks. I'm way past my prime. <laughs> Whoa, man, we're gonna have to celebrate that at Gen Con. <laughs> we're just a bunch of old guys on the show. That's what we Tell are. Tell me about it. This is the this is the geriatric geriatric version of Two Champs One Jump. <laughs> two Champs One Jump, three Viagra, I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, I think, you know, I, I was about to say we're going to take the conversation a little, little deeper now from this fluff, but I think that comment just puts that in a whole new light. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Uh, let's, let's alter, uh, the rotation here and, uh, let's, let's let Naj double up and, uh, <laughs> it's, it just, well, it sounds worse. Thanks, Will. <laughs> now we're gonna go deeper, and I'm gonna get doubled up on. Is that right? I get the I get the top. Okay. So we're we're Great. gonna start uh, start on your end for the rotation, <laughs> and, uh, and then it'll be a tag team from there. Right, right, and then we'll we'll tag out. So, um, you know, I'm I'm curious. I'm I'm gonna throw a handful. Of, of questions together at you here, and I'll, I'll let you kind of ramble uh, through them because they're, they're semi-connected. So I want to know what's your preferred house to play, what's the favorite deck you personally have ever built, what's the favorite deck that you've seen uh, that you have not built, and just for giggles, favorite plot. Okay. Um, I don't have a favorite house. I play all the houses because I enjoy different aspects of each uh, house, and I think the game is built in an extraordinarily great way that allows each house to have a little bit of a unique feel. So because of that, I just kind of jump all over the place. Um, I think my favorite deck was probably the first deck I ever played in a competitive scene, which was uh, the Bear Maesters deck. And I know that that deck had been... Uh, created in Europe, actually probably a better version of that deck than the one I ended up playing at Gen Con. But as a new player, I wasn't connected to the meta, so I built it myself. Uh, actually, not myself, but I built it with uh, French Horn Mikey, hmm. uh, another member of the community. And we were both pretty new players at the time. And I was so proud of that deck because I did so well with it in my first major tournament. So I think because of that, I kind of have this nostalgic view of that deck. And the best deck uh, that I ever played against that uh, you know I thought was so cool was actually the deck that knocked me out, which was the deck that Greg was running, uh, where he was using the Viper's Bannerman and Narrow Escape to get just insane card draw. And I remember looking at that and going, that is just a piece of art. And uh, after he beat me with it, I was happy to have played it. 
Like, <laughs> so it's not very often that you lose a match and instead of going, Oh, I'm so mad I lost. You said, wow, that was so cool. And that was it for me. And I had, at the time I didn't know, of course, that, uh, Greg had been a, a world champion previously and was a big name in Thrones because I was so new to the community. Um, so that was a very positive experience for me. Uh, my favorite plot, John, this, uh, you know, this one's for you. I think it's first snow of winter. I oh, think thanks. for a section of, uh, Thrones, it really defined how you built a deck. And I think it still does in some ways. You know, you have to really always keep that in the back of your mind. If first snow becomes, um, you know, big in the meta again, then those weenie characters have less value or you have to run forgotten plans to counter it. And, uh, John Bruno's always saying that plots are so integral to Game of Thrones, that they're so important. And First Snow Winter is one of those plots that has this great effect. It's not just about, you know, two claim wacky in the face. It has this great effect that really shapes the game. And because of that, it's probably my favorite plot. Awesome. Well, I think that was a good rundown. Let's uh, let's keep the rotation going. Kick it over to uh, Bruno here. You want me to run back through the questions, or think you're pretty solid on those? I think I got him. Um, I will see if my senility holds up or not. But I think that my favorite deck that I've ever played. Well, all right, I'll start off the house because that was your first question. My crazy enough, uh, even though I have one, I I've played. Um, Targ in Worlds twice and I'm 2 0. <laughs> but I played Lannister more often than any other house at Worlds. And I did make the final table with it once, but Lannister is definitely my favorite house to play. Um, card draw, money, economy, um, control, all those things is what I love about Lannister. So, um, you know, also they're, they're devious pricks and I like to be that way too. So, um, I do probably relate more to Lannister. But I've had the more overall final success with Targ. So that is my favorite house to play is Lannister. My, um, favorite deck that I've ever played, um, obviously has to be the House of Pain deck that I played in 2012. That was after, you know, I came back from the game like a year into the game. And I remember the, the night before or two nights before world started that year, um, I was playing a couple of games with Nate and I told Nate, I said, you know, Nate, I don't know if this deck is going to win. But it's definitely the funnest deck I've ever played. You know, I feel really good about it, but I don't know if it's going to win or not. And so I just loved all the, you know, recursion that was in the deck, the, you know, the draw, the control, everything was part of that deck. And and I really, really liked my plot deck a lot for that deck. That's probably my favorite deck I've ever built and played. Although my second one, which is actually probably really close second, is Martell Hollow Hill that I won a 2013 regional with last year. Um, including being bloodthirst before all the stuff got restricted because Ariane and the river plots and all the control you had in that deck, um, was so much fun because I love, I really do love plot manipulation. So that was, that's a really, really close second because there were so many answers in that deck too. So answer decks are always the most fun. Those are my two favorite decks I've ever played. My favorite deck I've ever played against was, uh, another Hollow Hill deck. It's amazing. Three different Hollow Hill decks here. But it was Greg's, it was Greg's Martell Hollow Hill. Yeah. The two, two, two. Yeah. Um, so to me, that would be eight since I'm a math teacher. That was like two cubed. So I'll just go with that. But, um, I think Greg's deck that he played in 2011 when he lost, uh, Zyler in the finals and he should have beat him was, um, the Martell Hollow Hill deck. He had, Hollow Hill deck he had with all the re- reinforcement events was really, really a lot of fun to play against. Um, he did beat me in the top eight that year. And, uh, again, I think he beat me because of a plot choice. 
he made a good decision on the very first turn. And um, I played Fear of Winter, and he played Valor and killed my characters, and I was boned after that. And I, that's how that's why I say it's so great about Thrones is plots can win or lose games. Just how you build your plot deck and and playing them at the right time. So so he, um, he took both of us out that year, and we both yeah. think that his deck was the best one we ever played against. Exactly, isn't that fun? Okay, that's interesting. And, I know. And uh, plots. Um, obviously I have to go to first though, you know, designing it, but back in the 2005 version or 2006 when it first came out, cause when revealed it discarded all the weenies basically and they couldn't be saved. Mm-hmm. I love that version. And, um, I mean the, the, the current one is amazing too. And like John said, I do think it's meta defining, but, um, it and was, it uh, so well with my agenda. They, exactly. Exactly. You know, so it's, it's so much fun. It's, uh, it, it's a great plot and, you know, real quick, because if Matt Layer listens to this, although he probably doesn't, back in 2006 when I when um I designed my card and he won, well he won in 2006, but my card came out in 2007. His card, the original Ghost of High Heart, that couldn't be discarded because he purposely made it so it could not be affected by my plot card. The very next year in the top eight at 2007, um, great Matt and I played in that round. And Matt had, and if you know Matt, he never puts weenies really in his deck. Matt had four weenies, two cost characters or less, on the table on the first turn. And um, and I had the Ghost of High Heart. And I played the first though, and all his guys went away, and he couldn't believe that his plot, my plot card actually boned him, which was a lot of fun. So <laughs> anyway, that's my favorite plot. Well, I think that sends us around to Greg. All right, well... You know, sometimes I think my answers, not sometimes, but I definitely think my answer is going to be geared more towards the LCG era just because, you know, that's most recent and that's on, on my mind and my memory is just not so good. Um, overall, I would say my favorite house, though, over the years has probably been Targaryen. Um, I've probably played it more often than not. And in terms of thematic decks, I've probably played Burn more often than not. You know, or excuse me, more often than any other, you know, particular theme or mechanic, you know, over the years than anything else. So I would say probably Targ um, would be my favorite house in terms of favorite plots. That, that's a really good question. And I, I think for nostalgic reasons, my favorite plot is going to be a CCG plot that most of our listeners won't know, but it was one called Recruiting Season. And it was a... It was one I played in 2004, the first year I won Worlds, and nobody played it. Nobody thought it was very good, and every time I played it in that tournament, it w- it just rocked for me. And it was basically a plot that said both players can only marshal characters during the marshaling phase. So you couldn't play events, you couldn't, you know, marshal attachments or locations. And because I knew I had it in my plot deck, and they didn't, then... um you know, it, I was always able to use it to great effect for me and hurt my opponent. So I would say that that's maybe one of my favorites for nostalgic reasons. Plus, I mean, heck, I can't say first snow winner since the other two guys just said it. And um, in terms of favorite deck, interestingly, these guys have mentioned one of them. It's probably my second favorite, which is the 2011 Martell Knights of the Hollow Hill. One of the reasons why it's my favorite, because everyone that tried to play the deck afterwards didn't have the same success. And so I constantly was told, you know, Greg Atkinson wins decks with crappy cards that aren't very good. 
you know, like when people refer to the reinforcements and stuff like that. Um, so that, that was neat. Um, and I, I did like that deck a lot, but I would say my favorite is one that actually started with John Bruno, which is the 2013 Knights of the Hollow Hill, um, Greyjoy deck that after that event right. basically ended up getting four cards restricted and another one, <laughs> actually another two got house targ only so they couldn't be played out of Greyjoy. And that was that, uh, Greyjoy Knights of the Hollow Hill character light deck that basically just recurred Rainus Hill every turn. And interestingly enough, that is the only world championship event where I went undefeated in Swiss and then crapped out in the finals. I've never been undefeated in Swiss in any other event other than that year and uh, was the number one seed and then lost to the, I think, 16th seed that year. But I loved yeah, that 16. deck. I, I loved that deck because I was playing a different game. You know, other people were trying to, you know, do the normal, a little bit of control, win challenges, claim. And I'm like, no, I'm just building up this huge location base and I'm going to kill your dudes through bungled orders and valor and Westeros bleeds and storm the gates. And then I'm just going to reuse your dudes turn after turn after turn with Rainus Hill. Loved that deck. It's super cool. And it started, Bruno was the one who actually uh, got me going on that deck. He sent me the first deck list on it. I mean, I ended up changing 10, 15 cards that we talked about over a month or two, but um, loved it. So from here on out, though, guys, I think we are going to loosen things up a little bit with some questions, uh, get a, get uh, a little different discussion going. Uh, with some starting points. I think I'm going to let Tommy uh, kick it off with these because uh, he brainstormed all the good questions, which is all of them. <laughs> well, please. A lot of pressure, Tommy. Right. Yeah, I know, right? Jeez. So um, we'll start around, start with these questions, and I guess we'll throw it out to one person at a time, and then you guys can chime in um, as you guys see fit. But uh, maybe we'll throw this one to John first. Where do you start when you're building a deck? Is it with your house, the theme, restricted card, plots? Where do you, where do you usually go to? I'm assuming John is me, Bruno. Just to make sure, right? Because yeah. right. Well, I mean, because there's dark night, but okay. So I always, like I said before, is like I, if I know, I don't have a favorite. I mean, I did say I like playing Lannister the most, but I don't, I don't have like anything I ever feel like I have to play. I like to try everything. And um, so, you know, if I start with a house, I say, okay, here's my house. And then I go and build, usually look at the plot deck next. Because um, like I said earlier, and I've said it many times before, I do feel like a, plot, a good plot deck can overcome a lot of, um, not deficiencies in a deck, but at least disadvantages you have in the same certain situations if you build a good plot deck. So I try to build my plot deck next based around, that house or idea I'm trying to come up with the deck. And then I'll start pulling. Like, there's probably a good 30 cards. You name a house, there are a good 30 cards that are going to be in every single deck of that house. You know, once you count triplicate of a lot of stuff. And then the other 30 is what really makes or break that deck, what makes it different. And that's where I hope you try to supplement things with the plot deck. So that's what I usually do. I usually start, I have that core set of 30 cards, whatever, and go from there based around my plot deck. Very cool. What about you, Greg? Um, I think I think for me, I tend to try and start with an idea 
And I would say that most of the time that idea is very focused. Like, I don't necessarily say I'm building a burn deck. I think a lot of times I'll find two or three cards, and they may be a plot. They may be, you know, cards in the draw deck. But they they interact with each other in a way that interests me. And I think many people that play me often will know that I just don't play the standard quo decks very often. Even mm-hmm. if I know Lanny Neal is kicking everyone's butt, I won't play Na- Lanny Neal. But I'll find an idea that interests me, and then I will just start with that idea. And it might be two or three plots that work together, like first snow winner plus rule by decree followed after it is a strong combo. And I may say, I want to build a deck around that combo, you know, or I may say, I love Bran Stark with Hand of the King on him, you know, and so I want to build a deck around that combo. So generally what I do is I start with an idea and then I stretch out from there. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I do Naj- something very, yeah, I do something very similar to what Greg does. I, I get a concept and from that concept I start building a deck. So my concept might be, you know, I want to do burn out of Lannister or I want to, you know, make a tower barrack deck. And with that, I would start building and choosing the best house to accomplish that, the best pots to accomplish that, and then kind of build the deck. Um, sometimes I have simple concepts, like I want to build a Stark deck that kills stuff. I mean, that's pretty generic Stark, but, you know, if that's the, the mood I'm in, then that's what I'll build. Makes sense. So I'll throw this one to Greg first because I have a feeling where the answer is going to go. Um, do you always build to and stick to a hard cap of 60 cards, or do you feel flexible enough to go over that frequently? <laughs> well, I'm notorious yeah, for <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, notorious for big decks. And uh, how big yeah. was the one you won your first? Uh, well, Worlds that year was 67, but then in 2006, when I got second place, I believe I had a 70-plus card deck. But that was a very, I think it was like 78, 79, but it was a tutor-oriented deck back then. Stark had a lot of search effects, so, you know, I was just constantly searching the deck. Um, I'd say lately, if I'm not building Bear of Black Sails or Targ Black Sails or some Black Sails version of a deck, I'm getting a lot closer to 60. Um, but over the years, I've not been a stickler to it, no. What about you, Naj? Um, I'm more of a stickler, I think, than the other two guests. I know that uh, though John Bruno's a math teacher, he doesn't really care about all these you know hyperbolic calculations and stuff <laughs> when it comes to deck building. Um for me, I try to follow that math. Now, I'm not a stickler at sticking to 60 specific cards as long as my chance to draw in the key cards that I want stays the same. So if we have, you know, five cards in the deck that I think are the key cards because, you know, maybe they do similar effects even though they have different names, then I'm okay going to 62 or 63 uh, cards as long as um, I can accomplish whatever that task is for my deck. But generally, I try to stay at 60. And Bruno, tell us why you ignore Saber Metrics. <laughs> well, again, like John said a little bit, but also Greg too. Um, the other things you do for your deck is add other stuff in. Like take a card like Much and More. Um, that gives you another chance to search your deck. Obviously, plots. I mean, Greg said, you know, Stark used to have lots of search plots because they're really hurting now for search plots. Uh, <laughs> no, they're not. But anyway, um, the, you know, I, 
I don't know. I've never really stuck with 60. Maybe because I'm greedy. I, you know, I, I want this card and I want this and I want that and I want this. So I think I'll just have it. And that's what I usually do with my deck. Plus, um, I'm a pile shuffler, like a lot of people are when they shuffle their cards. And I usually use piles of seven. So 63 has been my magic number for like the last few years because that's a perfect seven goes into 63. So I got seven piles exactly of nine. Now that uh, makes sense I, for a math teacher. Yes, it is. That exactly. sounds like so numerology. There is like mathematics in it. Then. There is mathematics. If I get that one-ish, and it sucks when you play with a House of Dreams card, you know, and I still have a 63-card deck because that one starts off, and I'm like, oh, man, what do I do now? So sometimes I go to 64 for that just to make sure I fill that slot up. But I did <laughs> win. the chi. Yeah, you can't do that. So, But in 2005 when I won, I did have a 64-card deck, and uh, in 2012 – I ran 63, which probably was not the smartest idea because in a Hollow Hill deck, you are setting yourself behind more because you're not getting a setup. Where if you are getting any kind of flop at all, you are, um, getting more, you're looking at more cards. But at the same time, when you run Hollow Hill, I think you can put better cards and you can eliminate some of the crap that you have to put in a regular deck to just to, for, to ensure a decent flop. Absolutely. So I'll throw this one to you, Naj, first. Um, philosophically, do you think building to have answers to the current meta or building to surprise the current meta better approach? Um, I like both. I mean, I, I think surprising the current meta is about building an answer to the current meta. Being able to call the meta when you're building a deck is probably one of the most important things you'll ever do, especially um, currently, because the meta, in my mind, is extremely well balanced right now that uh, every house kind of has a shot from a different build or two and being able to call or determine what you think everyone's going to be playing at a major event like Gen Con goes a really long way because then you can bring that uh, that you know interesting janky deck that you built that might be able to counter those decks and so that basically goes to the point where if I'm building a, a Stark deck and I think everyone's going to bring Stark then building a few things in that can beat those other Stark decks is probably important. I know that's like the opposite of uh, several big, like if uh, Corey was on the show, he'd be saying, you know, never build with a bullet in mind. But uh, one of the one of the decks that I took to Gen Con and I got to top uh, 16 with, and then Al- uh, Alex went on to get to top four with, was actually called the Silver Bullet for a reason. It's because we had all these answers to these different decks in it and we would search them out using black sales so i'm okay with the silver bullet once in a while as long as you can call that meta right i mean putting a bunch of bullets in your deck uh, that you're never going to have a use for is completely uh, horrible so you know it's kind of a risky maneuver I, I really think that that's the key that you know a silver bullet is valuable if on its own it's still a quality card you know, if it is only in your deck to deal with certain situations, then now it's a credit card. Now, don't get mm-hmm. me wrong. I have still done that. My 2009 deck was a winter deck, and I ran red warlocks in a Greyjoy winter deck. And I did that. Back then, there was not many ways. There was really one, the Raven search plot, to, you know, go get a white raven out of your deck. So my thought was it just gives me one extra chance if my opponent makes it summer for me to turn around and make it winner again. So, um, but in general, you just can't have too many cards in a deck like that. Otherwise you are watering it down so much that when you draw that in, in every non silver bullet situation, it's going to harm you. 
Now, I do think that there is another side of it that you've mentioned, that there is the surprise effect. Um, in my years of talking with Nate, he used to always call it the buzz, that there's always a deck or two at a major tournament that there's just a buzz about, that, you know, it's enough different, it's enough unique, or it's enough challenging that all those people are talking about it, like, oh, did you hear so-and-so's playing this, or did you hear so-and-so's playing that? And it just, all of a sudden, there's this general buzz about it, and the reason why is because it makes your brain twist a little bit because if someone's playing a card you're not expecting, it changes the game. If you're playing against Stark and they put a card in Shadows, you're reasonably sure it's Mira. Maybe it's not, but at that point in time, you are at least planning your game expecting Mira, you know? And if in games where things don't meet your expectation, it can mess you up or likewise if you do something to your opponent that messes up their expectation of gameplay it can mess them up and there is value in a game for that yeah that's a really good point um did you have anything you wanted to jump in on this one with bruno i think that having um the idea of trying to build for everything is impossible and i agree with you know Naj that you cannot build Saying, okay, I gotta deal with locations, I gotta deal with attachments, I gotta deal with this, I gotta deal, how am I gonna handle it? You can't handle everything. I mean, there are very, very few decks you put all this stuff in, and sometimes you end up having it all in, and then you're like, I draw this and it wasn't applicable to the opponent I'm playing right now. So, I think you gotta build what you build for your deck that feel like it's efficient. Um, I hate the decks that build strictly for a combo, or like, oh man, if I didn't get this card, I, you know, if I would have drawn that one card, I would have won. Well, then your deck didn't do what it's supposed to do because you need to have more than one way. I mean, if getting this one combo is the only way you're going to win and you're trying to put everything in for that combo, um, yeah, there's going to be games you pull it off, but most games you're not going to. It's going to be really hard to win a huge tournament. I mean, it happens. We've seen that happen before in the past, but in general, it's very difficult to just build for a single combo. I like, I never, I never want to feel like any character any location, anything in my deck is that important. I hope that I have many answers. The best way I've heard that described is that you want your opponent to have to answer you. You don't want to be running a ton of answers in your deck to yep. run into that opponent to answer. You want to, every time you put something, a threat on the board, you want your opponent to go, oh man, I gotta figure out how to deal with this. I gotta, you know, start playing differently. You don't want to have to say, okay, I'm gonna wait for him to put a bunch of attachments on someone and then I'm gonna drop my bastard. Exactly. No, but a frozen solid, however, you know, it's got much more, uh, uses. So that would be, uh, the type of, yeah, exactly. The flexibility would allow me to put something like that in my deck and I'd feel very comfortable running a frozen solid. And and so, also onto that too. Let me say one more thing too about that is that um, in terms of you're going to have some decks that are bad matches for you. But I always say this to like even my local guys too. When you go into a tournament, you you know you're like, oh man, if I play a Quentin deck, I can't be like. Say you're playing a Lannister deck, a Lannister Neil deck, and you're like, man, if I run into a Quentin deck, there's no way I could beat that Quentin deck. He's going, you know, you know, as a Dark Notch can tell you. But um, but no, truthfully, <laughs> but I mean that is usually a bad match for it. And I just say, okay, if I play that deck, is it, is it possible I could beat that person because, um, I'm a better player, my plots happen better, I, they get a bad flop, I get a good start. All those things are true. It's possible to, to have that happen. So you should never fear one matchup or try to build against one matchup because what if you go to that tournament and none of that's there? It's like right now, Greyjoy both decks are all over the place. So let's say I build a plot deck with 
you know, attack from the sea, fleeing to the wall, dry season, burning bridges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I run all those in my deck because I'm ready for that. And I go to the tournament and I don't show, I don't even play one of those decks. You know, I always fear, figure that, that deck has a bad matchup too. They might beat them along, they might lose to that kind of, their bad matchup along the way. I might not even face that person. And if that's my one loss I get in Swiss, then uh, hopefully I won't match up against them in, in the top whatever. And, and if I do, I'll just do the best I can against it. But you can never plan against one deck type. Well, I'm going to throw one follow-up here to, to Greg and uh, Naj here. Uh, Greg, a couple of times, I know this has happened for you. And then Naj, I know at Gen Con, at least last year, you guys have been the, the buzz that Greg described with the decks that you were playing. Um, have you felt in those scenarios when you have been the buzz that it has been a disadvantage, an advantage, uh, it's been added pressure, or has it just been something that you just roll with? Um, it's only a disadvantage when scouting starts happening. And, you know, there's a difference between a buzz and scouting. You know, a buzz is, oh, man, did you hear about that deck and yada, yada. Scouting is when people are starting to name off all the different cards in your deck and say, beware of this. And then there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this. And 2013, all your plots. (laughs) um, In 2013, I'm very well aware that people knew 85% of my deck by the, by the time we reached single elimination. Now it didn't help that one of my games was on the, uh, you know, video cast that was being done that year at worlds. But you know, it's, there's a difference there. So it can be a disadvantage if there's a lot of scouting, you know, otherwise I think it's actually an advantage because there's a certain sense of, um, your opponent is just going to have a little bit of awe and, or, you know, second guessing. Uh, you're second guessing a little fear. Actually, you know, if, if they're, if you're the one that has the buzz and they know it, they're going to go in that game and go, Oh man, I've got to play against that. You know, the moment you hear that you have an advantage. Yeah, for me, I mean, the, the times that that's happened to me, I didn't, I wasn't even aware of it until after the tournament. And then someone came up to me and said, Oh, everyone was talking about your deck and doing this. And, uh, I wasn't playing differently, but I think if everyone was talking about my deck and coming into it and having all these discussions, then, uh, for me, I think they were playing differently. And if, uh, I accomplished that, then it's probably an advantage for me in some ways. Um, but like Greg said, I think there's a big difference between the buzz and full-on scouting. But I think scouting is going to happen, and there's not much you can do about it. So you just roll with that uh, regardless. Right. Well, that but that is the disadvantage of it. I mean, if that's if that's the core of the question, is an advantage or a disadvantage, a deck with buzz is going to have more scouting than a deck without buzz. Greg, you could show up with any deck at Gen Con, and you're going to get scouted. <laughs> whether people well, are talking about it or not, right? Like, <laughs> Truthfully, we've all heard this before in the past. I mean, even just over the last three years. Uh, John, I think you get that. You and Alex get that because you guys are original deck builders. Greg is that for the same reason. I know I've got that because I've had some success where there are people who are intentionally out there trying to see what you're playing to share that information, disseminate that information with the other people out there. Um, I've heard many stories about that happening and, you know, it's one thing that happens in a game, but, um, in general, it's still the thing that, again, this goes back to what I would say about plots. I think the plot deck is still the most secretive. The one thing you can control is different. And once you find out somebody is or is not running Valor, is or is not running, 
the aftermath or whatever the case may be, say now fleeing to the wall. Um, those are all really, really important things to know or not know. So those can screw somebody up if they find out your plot deck even more than what's actually in your deck. I completely agree. Completely yep. agree. The scouting of a plot deck is much more valuable to your opponent than the scouting of a draw deck. Yeah, It's easier yeah. to memorize. It's easier to start guessing what they're going to play next. I totally, yeah, I'm on board with that too. Okay. Well, I think maybe that sends us on to the next question here, which actually ties into the scouting uh, a little bit since, you know, that kind of winds up being uh, a bit of a group effort when people start communicating that information back and forth. I'm curious, from a deck-building front, uh, if you feel it's better done alone or uh, as a group. I'll, uh, I'll let Notch jump on this one first. Um, I build best as a group. I'm uh, a concept guy. I like to do shells uh, quickly and get these great ideas, but I'm not a, a person that refines a deck and, and you know finishes it off with those last five card changes that make all the difference, really, in the end. Um, so I enjoy building with, uh, people that have, you know, similar ideas and like the same type of decks as me, uh, but that are better at that, that tweaking, uh, than they are with the, uh, the original builds. So for me, I think, uh, I wouldn't have been as, as successful at this game as I have been, uh, if it wasn't for the help of all these people that, uh, ended up tweaking my decks for me or working with me on these decks. So I definitely like building, uh, in a group, a somewhat group setting. I don't want 50 people or anything, but you know, uh, one or two other people I, I really find helpful. Cool. Uh, what do you think about that one, Greg? Uh, I think at different times I'm on different sides. Um, I think the further away we are from a major event, uh, generally the more of a group thinker I am. And then the closer we get to an event, the more I will kind of, you know, begin thinking of ideas that I'll kind of keep to myself, you know. Um, and maybe when I say further to an event, I mean, maybe I'm talking about just a few days before the event starts. I'll start thinking, well, you know, here's a card I want to add. And, you know, I haven't really talked to anyone about it and I'm not ready to talk to anyone about it. You know, and and as John said, quite often it might be a plot. You know, maybe I've decided, you know what, my restricted is going to be fear winner. I don't want anyone knowing I'm running Fear Winner until the last moment possible, you know, because of the impact that card has on a game and it is in the plot deck. So I would say it's probably about 90, 10, 90% of the time I want to be a group thinker and work on it. And then 10% of the time I'm like, okay, I'm not going to divulge this. That sort of thing. <laughs> um, for me, it's the, I don't know, I, I guess a lot, it's similar to Greg in a way. I'm not really much of a group thinker, um, not because I don't have a problem with it. It's just that I just don't usually have time to even – I haven't really <laughs> sat around and thought about and built decks for a long time, um, not just since, you know, the announcement of the 2.0, but in general, it's not anything that I ever do. I mean, I'm sure, you know, Dark Nosh probably has spent more time building decks, like, in the last month than I have in the four years since I've come back and played the game. Um, I do think, and this is going to sound really, really, um, maybe even people wouldn't think this is true, but I do think the times that I have, I felt the best about, uh, playing decks and building decks in my group think it would be with good players. You know, it's some, sometimes you're a competition. 
Um, but like I, Greg uh, is somebody I do share decks with. What's it? Yeah, exactly. That's why I never work with you, Will. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, I, I feel like, you know, Greg is probably, I would say the two people I have shared my decks with the most and worked with the most over the years were Greg and, um, John Krause out here in Southern California. And those are the, John's just because he's a good friend and we're close by and we share a lot of deck ideas. And Greg, because I respect him as a deck builder and a player. And, um, I think that, and a little bit over the last few, say six months or so, I mean, I've talked to John, you know, Andrew's here about a few decks and, um, you know, worked on some stuff. And that's where I think you get better at, not just building decks and being afraid of your competition, but sharing the decks with those people because they're going to really give you some good ideas. I mean, I have, and I'm sure we all get this. Greg gets us a lot. I'm sure John gets it all the time too. I get people send me decks all the time. Like even this past week, I spent more time working on people's decks this last week than I have like on my decks for the, for the 2015 year. Um, you know, people send me decks and I, you know, a lot of times if I have, if I'm bored and don't feel like working on my life, I'll look at people's decks and, um, sometimes that'll even motivate me to do something on my own, but I'll give them some ideas too. So I don't know. I don't have, I don't have as much time to, or I'm not as motivated enough to go like on Ego Cards or Card Game DB, um, listen to the podcast. And, uh, I, I wish I did. I wish I was motivated enough to do that stuff. Maybe that'd make me a better player. But, um, you know, I just kind of get an idea on my own, build it from there. And then, uh, when I go out and play locally, you know, I'll tweak it from that way. But that's pretty much what I do. You know, I'll speak a little bit to what John is saying there in that. One of the things I've noted about John and playing with him or watching him play games over the years is John is one of the most fundamentally sound players. And I'm not saying he doesn't ever make mistakes, but most of the time if he does make a mistake, it's like a third or fourth order mistake. You know, it's one of those things where after the game he's like, yeah, I should have done this instead of that. And I'm like, man, John, that is so deep in the order of mistakes that most people wouldn't even consider that a mistake. And so, you know, I, I probably have even played less than John. There are, Will, you'll know this, that there are times when I kind of just phase out of the game for like four or five months, you know, and I'm pretty much good for nothing. And people will send me decks. I mean, Tommy used to send me decks, but I think he got tired of me saying, uh, yeah, I'll look over this. And honestly, I haven't looked at a single Game of Thrones card in like two months, you know, <laughs> so he probably just got tired of sending me decks because I was good for nothing in terms of giving him feedback on it. So, um, well, but I'll that, tell you what, you've taken a couple of them and had success with them. So, so yeah, and I, I think, you know, and maybe there's some follow up questions here in terms of the actual gameplay in that there, there is a, there is a nature of being good at this game that goes beyond deck building. I think there kind of is a follow-up that we had planned. It, it It's kind of parallel to, I think, where you were heading without quite going to exactly the same point. And that's just expounding on whether, you know, when you're getting ready with a new deck for a tournament, do you build that in advance with a, with a lot of reps and testing? Or do you stay up till 2 in the morning the night before in the hotel room throwing the deck together? Well, yeah, for me, I've done both. I mean, 2009 was the night before. I mean, both years I've won Joust were built the night before, and both 
And then two, the two decks that I said were my favorite, 2011 and 2013, those were decks that had reps that I had built weeks before and worked on and worked on. Um, same kind of thing for me, uh, as Greg, you know, the, the deck that ended up uh, getting me my card design at Gen Con was one that I had played at regionals a bit and then taken to a tournament like the week before Gen Con and ended up playing that. So I didn't have a ton of reps with it, but it was something that just felt right. Now, on the other hand, I love testing. I love playing the game, right? So if I have an excuse to play the game 20 times with the same deck against good players, I'm going to take that excuse. So, you know, if I can con Alex or John Bruno or if Greg would ever get online, um, <laughs> <laughs> then I would, I would take that excuse to get, uh, you know, as many games against them as I could. You know, I, I try to play people from New York and um Southern California and all over the world if I can. And I'm hoping that this year before Gen Con, I'm going to be able to make it out to New York in person to play a bunch of games with them because uh, I love the community as much as I love building decks. And I think practicing with uh, the community is just such a great time. Right. You got people there in New York, like, I mean, Dave Strom's, Dan Strahal, you know, yeah. a lot of good players out there. And, you know, just kidding. That's why I said you can't be afraid to take your deck and be, oh, I'm going to be totally secret about it. I'm not going to let anybody see it. You're going to get better by playing against good players. You know, we have, I feel like my, my area out here in Southern California has grown a lot. Um, we have really strong players out here. And I know that there's times when, um, I remember when they were first starting playing this, you feel like I could play like any deck. I'm just pulling this deck together. It's a bunch of crap. I'll play it and I'll still win. And now you can't do that, which is awesome because they, they'll make you better players. You can't, you can't really learn a lot sometimes against, um, players unless you even make your community better. So I don't feel like I've necessarily made them better. They've all made themselves better and they've really grown. We've all kind of grown together, but that's also really important. You have to have good players to play against. And I do think the idea, like I do like actually, like I said, working with other people. Um, even in 2000, 12 when I won, that was probably the first deck that I really evolved. I won the ver my first regional that year, and um, the first one I played with a Martell Hollow Hill deck, which is totally different. This is 2012, so that was before all River Plots and all that stuff came out and plot manipulation. And so I decided I want to do something different. And I remember um, Nathan Bradley down in Tennessee said, hey, I'm working on this uh, Targ Hollow Hill deck. You want to help me out a little bit? And I'm like, sure. And I said, I'll play it for my next regional. And then I played it for my next regional and I made top four in both of those regionals. And then the fourth, the, the third regional I played that I won. So I was feeling pretty good about it and I just kept tweaking along the way. And then it's kind of like what Greg talked about when, what the, the hollow hill Greyjoy deck that we had, um, you know, I sent him a deck list and by the time you played it, there were, you know, 15, 20 cards different in a deck. By the time I played the deck at worlds that year, I mean, I might've revamped half the deck, but still it's the idea and the concept. And the play you get that sometimes somebody out there in the community throws you something you weren't even thinking about building. So that's kind of cool too. I mean, you got to do that stuff too. And this weekend I have a regional and what is it? Three days from now. So I'm playing a regional. And last week, uh, there was a player who sent me, um, a deck to look at and asked me to take a look at the deck. And the one thing I did was I totally changed the plot deck. He had one, he had one. Like, um, he had like seven plots in there and I looked at the plot deck and I said, this is way better for this deck. And I changed his plot deck. He made us some other suggestions for the deck, 
But again, I changed the plot deck, and he did really well. He won his regional. So that was uh, that was pretty cool to see that that worked out for him. The plots worked for him. So I may I I haven't even built a deck for this weekend yet that I want to play. I might just play that deck and and with the the tweaks I've made to it. So that could be fun. All right. Well, I think uh, jumping over here, we've got uh, another kind of more general question. I'm kind of curious, just general feelings on agenda versus no agenda. You know, which way you went, lean personally, you know, as far as playing, but also, you know, which is better for the, the meta at large? Does the balance need to be struck? Uh, does it just need to go ahead and choose one way or the other? Uh, what what should the game plan be here, Nosh? Um... Where do I, I, you know, I, I like no agenda decks. I like agenda decks. I don't have a preference uh, between one and the other. I think right now that we're a little bit oversaturated with the no agenda decks. Um, they've been striving for a couple years to bring no agenda up so that it would have, you know, uh, equal representation or at least maybe 30% of the field would be no agenda, I think, is what they were striving for. And I have a feeling like that they overshot that a little bit. That no agenda got a little bit too good on the backs of things like Summon by the Conclave and Alaris and some of the other no agenda tech uh, that's out there uh, to the Frank. point where yeah to well Cavalry Frank's been around forever but right uh, you know just some of the other little uh, tweaks and, and twists that they've they've brought in uh, the char agendas uh, you know I was there where they introduced. No one really plays with Kindly Man, but the Kindly Man and Quentin and uh, the rest of them. And for me, that I think because they overshot that, you're seeing a little bit too much of it. And because of that, I'm sick of seeing them. I'd love to see FFG come down and change uh, the new agenda just enough so that it became more in line with that 30% that I think they were originally targeting. Um, how they would do that, I don't know. Maybe you restrict uh, summon. Maybe you hit uh, Alaris and some of this other no agenda tech. But uh, I'd like to see that happen uh, personally. It's like if you see any agenda too much. Remember when we saw just the Maester's Path all the time or Summer, Kings of Summer all the time. You get sick of it after a while uh, and you just want to see something different. Okay. Um, you know, Greg, uh, what, do you, what do you think here? This, this may be very similar of a, of a follow-up for you and Bruno uh, having played in, in the CCG. Do you have a, a different feel on, you know, where that balance should be? Well, I'm definitely an agenda person. Um, I, Naj, like you mentioned the 30% mark. Do you have like some information from FFG that that was their goal? You know, 30%, honestly, 30% no, to me that was seems my gut high. Feel. Okay. I, I don't like a field where 30% of our no agendas considering our card pool. Now, you know, come the launch of 2.0, you know, I'm sure that that's going to change. But considering we have so many agendas right now, 30%, you know, of one particular situation, whether it be 30% of people playing one agenda or 30% playing no agenda, which for all practical purposes now, no agenda is an agenda because of the benefits you get from it. Okay. I mean, 
Summon by the Conclave changed it. It really was the card that changed No Agenda because now all of a sudden you have a plot that benefits you and doesn't benefit your opponent that, you know, um, in a way that, that does impact games. Um, the interesting thing about Summon by the Conclave is the higher the percentage of No Agenda decks get, the lower the power level that actual card is because if you are playing no agenda and running that plot and your opponent is playing no agenda, now they get to search as well. Um, but I would, I personally would like to see the no agenda representation be about 10%. And then I would love to see equal representation of all the other agendas. You know, I think right now we're seeing uh, the highest level um, is, is it HOD? I know, Naj, you probably know yep. the annals better than I do. I think HOD is, is. first, and then um, Aloof and Apart is second, and uh, I don't really remember what's third. But uh, You know, for me, I think Aloof and Apart is probably just because it's one of the new shinies, so a lot of people were playing this regional season just to check it out. Right. Uh, and I think that's starting to settle back down now. You're seeing a lot less of it. Like Conquest was last year. Yeah. People want to try stuff, which is cool. So, yeah, I I just feel um, I'd rather play agendas because I think they add personality to a deck. Well, I, I feel like Greg. I, I personally like agendas a lot. I mean, to the point where I do think agendas are great for the game because it gives you variety. Um, you can have – look at how many different you, – you play a Lannister deck with no agenda. You play a Lannister deck with Maesters. You play a Lannister deck with Power Behind the Throne. Those can all be different builds. Then, like, the Seasons ones were actually really cool, too. To make a, like, somebody, somebody sees, like, Baratheon, and they're playing Winter, or Greyjoy, and they're playing Summer, and those are kind of cool things. Um, so I, I like the varieties you get from the game. In terms of agendas I've played, I've tried to really play all the agendas over the years to see how much I like them. In fact, this tournament season, I've been playing a lot of agendas that I've never played before, because there's a few I've never played before. Um, I'd probably say my, like my favorite agendas of all time, obviously Hollow Hill. Um, another one of my favorite agendas is the Kindly Man. <laughs> if he counts the agenda, which he really does. I love playing with the Kindly Man. Start no agenda, then turning into Kindly Man is awesome. Um, I really like House of Dreams. House of Dreams has been a lot of fun to play with. Again, just, uh, the change in that deck building you get with those things. And Power Behind the Throne. Those are all probably my favorite ones. I've always hated Bloodlust. Bloodlust is terrible. Just bad for the game and just a terrible card. I've always hated Bloodlust. Um, I don't think I've ever made a good heir to the Iron Throne deck. Uh, lately, I've put too much prize in it and it's hurting me. Um, but there are a couple other ones. Knights of the Realm. I see those. Knights of the Realm is a perfect example of a great agenda. Knights of the Realm is a great one because it's it's double double sorted. You know, you could really benefit from it, but you can also get really screwed by it. You know, power power behind the throne. Same thing. You know. I self-regulate. Yes, those right. are the best ones. Yeah. Those are the best agendas. As soon as they get start to get too good, then other people play them, and all of a sudden in the mirror match, it's horrible. Right. So. I do like that they're self-balancing. I did kind of think of a, of a follow-up here to that as we were going. Bruno, I know you uh, have dabbled in some Netrunner. I don't know if either of the other guest hosts have. Nope. Are nope. you talking about the new Jinteki ones? Well... Like sideboarding not, or not no, necessarily okay. those in particular, but just okay. that the identities in Netrunner uh, serve a very similar function to a, the agenda card type in Thrones. Exactly. But 
when when I sit and look at, at them, you know, for comparison's sake, it, it seems like the uh, the Netrunner identities are more inventive, maybe is the word that I'm looking for here. They they push boundaries in gameplay and encourage different deck building just pretty much across the board in interesting, unique ways. I just does does it feel to you like it does to me that a lot of times the Thrones agendas fall into this same trap in first edition of just being well. What's the the new way I draw my extra card this time? Oh, definitely. Um, I, I feel like it can be that way. Um, like I said, the creative ones that really could be, you know, good or bad for you, those are the best ones. But some of them are kind of, you know, like we played CCG. So seeing Siege of Winterfell compared to War of the Five Kings, you know, that was, you know, kind of like a, eh. I hate, by the way, I hate Siege. I know Greg's going to have lots of success with Siege, but I hate Siege. Um, but yeah, I would agree with that statement, Will, with what you're saying. All right. Well, back to Tommy then. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about cards that are meta-defining, things that are, are ubiquitous, things that are just, you, you have to always be considering. And there's probably one card that sums that up that is universal, and that's Valor. And so what we wanted to see is, have you ever gone to a major event and made a deck without Valor. Yes. Maybe start with start with Naj on this one. <laughs> yes, um, I have a few times, and I don't think Valor's, especially nowadays, it's not as neat as it was. We have other types of resets, like for Snow, like Aftermath. I mean, we have the Pale Mare. I don't think I've ever played with that in a, <laughs> in a major event, uh, but it's there. We do see my Gen Con deck. I would love to see the pale mare be useful, <laughs> um, but uh, I don't think Fowler needs to to go in every deck. And I, you've seen some huge wins. Uh, you know, the the person that comes to mind for me is Jacob from, uh, you know, Jacob the Giant Underpants. And the reason he got that name was because he was consistently not playing Valor in decks that he was winning, you know, sixty plus person uh, events with. So. Um, you know, I, I don't think in nowadays that Valor is uh, needed in every deck. It's definitely still important, and you're still going to see it in 80% of the decks, and it still defines the game. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's not a have-to-have. Right. Uh, my 2004 championship deck did not run Valor. Um, 2006 runner-up deck, Valor was not legal. Um, but I think most major tournaments since then I have run Valor. Um, I think John mentioned it. There was a point in time in the CCG days when Valor was not legal. Uh, there was an alternate plot, I think, called Winter is Coming or Winter Has Come. That Winter had Storm? The, no, no. no Winter is Come is correct. Yeah, it, it had an other's yeah. trait, just like Fleeing to the Wall does now. Fleeing to the Wall is a carryover from the CCG oh. days. And you had to run, it had to, you had to have at least two other plots in your used plot pile. Um, and then it killed all characters and couldn't be saved. So it was, it was a stronger valor, but you could see it coming from even further away. So but it did at least have claim. It was a three, four, one. So it had claim, but Greg's right that, you know, once somebody let off with two, two others plots, you knew that it was gonna, it was coming. And that's why. Um, partially why I built my, you know, created my agenda at that, I mean, my plot at that time because we needed another reset that wasn't 
just building up to that, committing three cards for that Valor. And but, I feel the same. Oh, go ahead, John. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say to Greg that I, I seem to remember um, a year at Worlds where you took a Lannister deck that was very similar to one that Kenan built, and you got all the way up to the cut. And the only reason you didn't win your cut game was actually because you weren't running Valor, because you were running Wildfire instead. <laughs> um, that's quite possible. Yes. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, okay. And I would, I would say that that was a pretty bad decision of mine because anytime you run power behind the throne, any, let me rephrase. Repeatedly. If, if you run a deck that trashes somebody's hand, then you absolutely should run balance. So that's just a rule. Sorry. It's in the court. It's in the rule book. I do. I see yeah. it in the FAQ. It says that it's on one of the pages. You should probably ask, ask Hines since Alex knows everything in there. But, yeah. um, <laughs> yes. But no, I, I agree. You know, it's funny. I remember saying this before, way back in like the old CCG days, but even when I came back in 2011, Greg and I had a conversation about it. I might have said it on one of your podcasts before too, Will, is that I, I always felt I was never going to play a tournament game without Valor. You know, mm-hmm. that I'd want to have Valor in my pot deck. And there have been times over the years when I chose not to put Valor in the deck. And one of them, by the way, was a power behind the throne deck and a kind of a rush type deck. And because you figure, well, I'm going to win with Rush or I lose. But, you know, if that, if I had actually put a Valor in, I might have actually won a couple of games that I didn't. But that was before. Now there are quite a, quite a few other recesses that you can get away with. I mean, you do have first no, but the aftermath is huge because the aftermath is even better than like, uh, well, wildfire for sure, but mm-hmm. even Valor. If you're behind in characters, by the time the aftermath goes, and usually with that seven initiative, you can get to go first. So you're three on three character wise. And if I just go down to my three good characters or, or marshal in two or three good characters and you're at three and I get to attack first and potentially kill one beforehand. I mean, you just, you don't, you don't necessarily need valor. Valor is good nowadays if you just want to kill one particular character. Like they have a viper on the table. He's not duped or anything. And you know, you know, if you play aftermath, he's still going to be on the table. So that's bad. But in general, Valor's not that great a plot anymore. And that was one thing I did recently, last month, where I played. That was probably one of the first regionals that I ever went into without playing Valor in my deck and just playing the Aftermath with the, the Lannister House of Dreams Manor deck I played. And um I never needed Valor once that whole day. So, you know, I think you can definitely offset it nowadays. Very interesting. So, It'll be interesting uh, to see if it's in the core set or not. For 2.0, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so we've got one last question here, and it's kind of less impactful given that everybody kind of has a feeling that an FAQ is coming uh, pre-Gen Con, but at least to give listeners a, a perspective in terms of the way that you guys evaluate a meta, understand how things work, the way that your your minds operate when you're putting a deck together. Uh, if you had to make a deck today for a legitimate tournament, how would you evaluate the atmosphere of the current meta? What would you feel that you were compelled to answer? And what areas do you feel like you could exploit? Maybe have uh, you just take us back on it, John. Okay, well, I think that um, I would build. I, I Actually, I talked to Greg about this earlier this week. I was thinking about building a Lannister deck that had like all these location kill cards in it, really playing attack from the sea and fleeing to the wall and burning bridges and dry season 
And just play Lannister because you get the control of characters too. So you control all the, like every turn you basically be playing a plot that messes with locations. And you'd also be able to control characters too. And if you did that kind of a deck, that would be a lot of fun. And I think it's probably pretty meta defining, but what's going to happen when you play those, like the, the decks that don't really run lots of locations and a huge field like Gen Con, there's going to be a lot of those decks. So you kind of maybe take the one or two decks that you think are really strong and build against that. Um, Sometimes I just like to build like Greg and just say, I don't give a crap. I'm just going to build whatever the frick I think I want to build and I'm going to play that deck. And if it does well, fine. If it doesn't, oh, well. And, you know, so I don't know. I guess that's kind of where I'm at in that position right now. If I I had to build a deck today, I would go Stark NA because it has the answer to to everything in the meta right now that I think a good player can pilot that to the point where that they could take it to victory. And I think Stark's in a really good place. Um, I tend to agree with John, um, but I think on a, on a looser term, you know, boats are in, in an interesting place right now because the warship decks, particularly those geared around longship maidens bane, either in the HOD set, uh, well actually more specifically HOD, but it can also run out of the old way. And that is that those boats that decks can play a different game. Okay, when they set up the way they want to, they're not playing the same game as you. Their game is I'm going to use Longship Maiden's Bane as often as possible every phase and shut down your challenge phase. And then I just win because none of your challenges are you going to win. So when John talks about playing this Lannister deck with all the, you know, location control plots, really what he's saying is, is that I want to build a deck that. I know can defeat this one thing out there that tries to play a different game than me and is going to hold its own against everything else. And, you know, there are decks. I mean, my 2013 great joy hollow hill deck was the same thing. I tried to play a different game. I'm not playing the same thing as you. You're trying to do one thing. I'm trying to do something so completely different that I don't care if you do what you want to do. It doesn't affect me. Okay, and in a way, boats are that right now. So even though I completely agree with Dark Knowledge that our the meta game overall is in the most diverse place it's been probably in the history of the game, we still have a degenerate deck type out there that if you don't have an answer for it and it does what it intends to do, you lose. And that that's is what of- that's what warships do right now. I agree, and that's one of the reasons I would actually run uh, Stark, because it has built-in answers. Uh, General right. Stark NA runs stuff like Bernie Bridges and Dry Season already. Right. So it's not like I have to twist or change my deck to beat that deck, because I find what happens if you take a decent deck that you've been playing for a little while in the regional season, you say, oh, i got to beat these boats, I'm going to change three of my plots. Well, now you can beat the boats, but can you still beat the other decks that didn't change themselves to fight the boats, and that kind of puts you in this weird rock, paper, scissors where uh, when you find a deck that you're playing the same game as, you're not as effective because you had to, to counter the boats. And it's one of the reasons I hope they do something about the boats when they, they hit the, the FAQ, not just because uh, they're strong, because people are beating them, but because they kind of twist or warp uh, the meta in a negative uh, way, in my opinion. And I also um, agree with John, by the way, that Stark, Stark is the best build right now. I mean, I would not be surprised, you know, uh, John and I were talking about this the other day. I told him that uh, I would not be surprised if like 10 of the 16 top 16 decks at Gen Con are going to be uh, Stark decks. I mean, with Frozen Solid, Mira, Calvary Flank, Alaris, if you play her in the 
Um, if you play her in, you know, the no agenda there, I mean, there's so many things you have. They have a kill, they have character kill and location kill. So they're just like the best overall all around deck. The one thing about them is they are kind of slow. They take a little time to build. So if you can work around that and get some kind of fast deck, you'll beat that deck. But so are location decks too. Location heavy decks are kind of slow too. So you get, you gotta work around that. So I think Baratheon actually, crazy as it seems, could be the real surprise one because you know how many crappy Baratheon decks win on the second turn? A lot. <laughs> oh, I got Stannis out. I'm a really good player. You know, it's like, I won a game with a Red Viper. What happened? He killed all my characters, but I still won. All right. So, you know, there are a couple cards that are like that, that you can win just because of all the round in Baratheon and win real fast. And so I think those decks could surprise people at Gen Con. Well, I think overall it was pretty good uh, discussion here. Pretty successful. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. Yeah, we we covered a a range. Maybe not uh, quite as much as I uh, would have liked if I'd let myself dive into some other follow-up questions as we went. But, hey, that gives us content for future episodes. And you know what, we'll have a whole new paradigm to uh, delve into analyzing here in, oh gosh, what, a month and a half or thereabouts. So uh, It's going to be crazy. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we'll have to do it again for 2.0. It'll be exciting. Well, we'll see with how the, how the, uh, the FAQ works for Gen Con, and then we'll see if they, whatever they do for Worlds. But yeah, 2.0 is going to be a totally different beast. Ghost